Listening to the flip side with Noah Filipiak, connecting the reality of the gospel to the grit of life. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Noah Filipiak or at noahfilipiak.com slash give. What's up, Flip Uponomai? Got it, nailed it. This is episode 35 of the Flipside Podcast. 35 is a lot. It's getting up there. It's almost to the midlife crisis phase. <laughs> I'm 37, so I can that's you're getting into my territory now when you get up to 35. 35 episodes. That's it's more than one. It's more than three. Getting up there flip side. You be over the hill before you know it. Getting a little gray hair here and there, a little Little gray specks in the beard, little salt and pepper action. You know it. Glad to have you here on episode 35 of the flip side. Uh, I'm gonna ask how you're doing. You know I don't want a a cliche surface level response. How are you really doing? It's been a tough year, hasn't it? It's been a tough year. COVID, and I've shared a bit on here about my own depression issues. I hope you are not isolated. I hope you are taking really intentional steps. Reach out to friends. Reach out to acquaintances. Try to get together for coffee or drinks. Have people over to your house. Go see a counselor. I had a friend ask me, a friend who is a counselor, ask me this week. She is a woman and a former coworker, and she asked me if guys. So, so we, I go to counseling, and I refer a lot of young adults to counseling in my job. And so, she asked me if guys are more open to counseling now, you know, than they than they kind of used to be. And I thought, yeah, I mean, my perspective was because of the work I do, and I'm so open about how good and healthy and helpful counseling is and I think in general very open about this message that if we really believe in grace that we're forgiven and that we're all in the same boat and Jesus covers us and we're his sons and daughters if we really believe that then that that kills shame so we can we can talk about our weaknesses we can talk about our struggles and I try to lead with that in ministry and in relationships and so uh, in our church which is awesome they pay for people's counseling they pay for people their first set of X amount of sessions of counseling. And so, yeah, I said, yeah, I've, I think I've had a pretty good amount of guys that I've, I've gotten into counseling. She told me something I didn't know, that guys are much less likely to go to counseling uh, than ladies. And that really made me sad. And if that's you guys uh, or ladies, if, you're, if there's a fear, if there's some shame, if there's insecurity, if you feel like, Oh, that's only for weak people, or or I don't know what you might think. Maybe it's a family pattern passed down that your parents never did or your church never did. I would really encourage you to just break through that, take a step, and if you, let's say, don't have insurance that covers your counseling, it would cost a lot of money, uh, find some counselors that'll give you a prorated, a, a discounted rate. They are out there. Do a little digging. And even talk to your pastor. Pastors are really well 
connected and networked. I'm not saying go to your pastor for counseling. I think you should go to a counselor or psychologist for your counseling. Uh, but ask your, your pastor for some recommendations. And that's often a good place to start as well. So I just say that, say, it's been a tough year, COVID, racial justice, and I, I carry that weight around. I, I'm in the middle of, of just this despair, this despair about how divided our country is, how unequal, how inequitable it really is among blacks and whites, and how how oh, the systems, the systemic racism in our country, it, I'm a person that wants to, to bring change and fix things, and you go, wow, the score is a million to three, and we're gonna try to we're gonna try to even the score, and so just dealing with that myself, I'll be interviewing probably next episode, if not next, then in a few episodes I'll be interviewing David Swanson, uh, Pastor David Swanson. He is the author of Rediscipling the White Church, and I'm gonna ask him some of those questions. He leads a multi-ethnic church in a predominantly black neighborhood on the south side of Chicago as a white guy. And so we'll have some really good discussions about that. But racial justice, I mean, if it, it, it might just miss you. You know, you might say that doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me at all. But I'm telling you, a lot of people I'm walking with, it's really heavy on their hearts. As people of color, it's been heavy on your heart since the moment you started breathing in this country. And and uh, prior to that, for your family and and generations before, for many uh, white people, we are waking up to this truth in reality. And I just I hope you are in community where you can talk about that stuff. And don't be discouraged. Uh, at the end of of rediscipling the white church, Swanson says, "Look, we are planting mustard seeds, and the kingdom of God is about mustard seeds. Mustard seeds are these small little." little seeds of hope and Jesus talks about the kingdom and how these little seeds grow and and uh, we'll talk about that more uh, in upcoming episodes but just don't lose hope wherever you're at whatever struggle you're bearing the gospel and the kingdom and the ways of Jesus they do bring hope the ways of Jesus are not the ways of this world we're not to be conformed to this world it's not the ways of the United States. Uh, it's it's the ways of Jesus. And I just take so much comfort in that, even when it feels like the ways of this world are, the tidal pull of them is just so, so strong. And even in the church, it can certainly feel that way. But know that Jesus, he's bigger than the church. And we should pray for the church. We are the church. Let's let's be the church uh, and, and part of that is is helping the church as, as much as God has given us the power and ability. Uh, I try to do that on this podcast as much as I can and on my blog. How do we help the church be the church to be a church that's not just about getting people into heaven, that's important, but about bringing the kingdom of God here, here and now to this place, uh, to this country and to the cities and communities uh, that we live in. So, so how are you doing? That's my question. How are you doing? And please be talking and be in community and don't try to do this alone. Don't try to do this alone. So a couple, uh, really just one podcast update. The Patreon swag is almost ready. I realized it has been since April that I got the designs made and we are in September. So there you go. That's how life has been. You know, 
there. That's just we'll just leave that there. We're almost there. So I ordered some. I ordered a couple. Like I got a few done, or you know, done, and the designs have been done. I got they're on the products, and and I've got a few products being shipped to my house as we speak. I'm still going going back and forth. Shout out to Zane, my design extra, guy extraordinaire, uh, Wilford Mina. Dot com. Good luck spelling that. It's kind of like spelling Philippiac. But Zane is awesome, and we're going back and forth trying to some of the some of the products. We have to kind of change the uh, their square designs and rectangle designs and make them fit. So we're going to have coffee mugs and travel mugs and journals, journal covers and stickers, like reusable kind of stickers you can put on your car, or your computer, and buttons, and they're going to be awesome. One of them says, I'm a flip eponymous, which is fantastic. One of them, I think my personal favorite, says, my third favorite podcast is The Flip Side. We have a couple serious ones. Uh, one of them is Colossians 1.22, and it's all spelled out. And one of them says, where grace lives, vulnerability abounds. And there are some other awesome types of swag you can get on the swag website I'm using, and they're hilarious, and I'll tell you more about those when uh, I have the swag ready, and and I'm going to give you the opportunity to get Flipside logos on pretty much anything you can imagine, which is pretty awesome. All right, so with that, Flipside, episode 35, you always can email the show. We have an email address. I love getting your email. Love it. I love it. So email the show. You can email serious things, funny things, questions, comments, all of the above. The email address is podcast at beyondthebattle.net. We have a few emails to get to before we get to our guest interview today, which I will tell you about after the mailbag. But first, let's jump into that wonderful mailbag I hear so much about. Mail time. Mail time. Alrighty. All right. I got someone that emails. I can't tell you their email. That would I'm not gonna give out people's contact information over uh over a podcast. Uh, but I don't know who it is. He's my he's my Secret podcast admirer. Not secret admirer of me. That's creepy and weird. Admirer of the podcast. I don't know who it is. I even looked through all my other uh all my all my other uh all my other emails to see if I got anything from this person before that I'm supposed to know who this is. And I, I haven't found anyone. So whoever you are, I love your emails. They're pretty great and and hilarious. Uh he says episode 34. That was last episode. Oh, he, the title is Noah's Rant. Uh, that's his title of his email. Episode 34's, I assume he means Noah's Rant, should be transcribed. Imagine all the additional followers you would get when they see the transcript in your popular blog. So I love this email for several reasons. I have no idea if he is dripping with sarcasm or not. I, I, I think he is, or she is, and I, and I hope that that is the case. My popular blog... Is really not that popular. <laughs> so I love that. And I love that he wants or she wants uh, Noah's rant. Episode 34's uh, rant to be transcribed and put into a blog. And this, this thank you, uh, anonymous podcast admirer, A-P-A. Uh, that's what I will call you. 
APA. Uh, thank you, because, you know, whenever I go to, to do Noah's Rant, you might notice this. I do Noah's Rant, and then I get done and go, man, is am I just seriously a complete moron, or do people actually think these are funny? And so I'm I'm insecure in my ranthood, and and really to do a successful rant you have to own it. You have to flip the switch. It's game day. The lights are on. The crowd, the stadium is full, and you go and you own it, and you do know his rant. So you know what, APA, thank you for this email that you want that rant transcribed. You thought my rant was uh, so good last episode, and actually it's going to be a little bit of a, a part two this time around. And so last time I talked, I ranted on dressers and how they're really the dumbest things in the world. And uh, we'll do part two of that rant today. So beautiful. Next email. This is a bit longer one. And I love it. Uh, This is from Alan. And he is writing in about my conversation with Todd Wilson. We had a conversation last episode about sexuality, sexuality. LGBTQ, same-sex attraction, and uh, general sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it heterosexual, uh, sexual sin. And Alan wrote in a great email, and he says, Hey, Noah, the podcast with Todd Wilson was such a good listen. You guys seem like old friends. It's refreshing hearing pastors in a conversation on this and not just sermons, conversation on sexuality. Church in general, and leaders especially, would do well following your example. There's something about truth that has a hard edge apart from love. I've spent most of my life in more conservative churches, and pastors, God bless them, have the doctrine nailed down really good, but until recently there wasn't a lot of hope or life in the message, the message about sexuality, specifically LGBTQ uh, message. It's And he keeps going, it's just deep encouragement hearing from a pastor that it's a struggle to endure and not just a sin to be judged. Uh, having said that, I also want to acknowledge what must be, I'm guessing, is difficult terrain to cover for straight guys. Kind of like a single guy talking about parenting, you guys did a good job. He says, if you have Todd back on, I'd love hearing you dive deeper into what manhood looks like. I don't know if straight guys struggle with this the same way. I think all guys do to some extent, and it's not just about sex and lust. Some years back, I left a comment on your blog that as an SSA, same-sex attracted guy who is side B, and Todd and I talked about what that what side B is, um, following the single celibate life, uh, so to speak, believing in the Bible's definition of, of sex between a man and a woman, but being someone who is same-sex attracted. Uh, he says, I feel like a robot having all the parts, but missing the battery. And the struggle, not of being a Christian, but of being a guy. It's kind of like Pinocchio's, I want to be a real boy, but about being a guy. There's cultures and religions in the world that have rituals that mark becoming a man. It would have been awesome having something like that at church growing up with questions you couldn't really talk about when it's just sin. Following Jesus has answered a whole lot of questions for me, but I'll bet there'll be a whole lot of kids that church could help until they find answers in Christ. It was so good. It's what was so good about your conversation with Todd. I didn't feel like an outsider. Alan, that is awesome. Thank you for that email. And I like reading all that because listeners need to hear that from a same-sex attracted guy. And man, there's so much there. I know I learned 
a lot from Preston Sprinkle, who I interviewed a few episodes back. Uh, check out his book, People to be Loved, if you guys, uh, if listeners, you all haven't already. But he talks a bit in his, uh, his talks that he does about sexuality. He has a book coming out about transgender, and they'll get a lot into gender there. But he talks about how what a narrow view of masculinity and even femininity uh, the church has has come up with, but particularly masculinity and, and talking about the, what you bring up, Alan, where the church has kind of just gone along with culture's idea that to be masculine means you, you know, you you grunt and you like tools and trucks and and you play football and have big muscles and, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And Preston will give examples of King David, who we see as, we we think of as a very masculine man. And King David wrote poetry. He played the harp. He he was a dancer. And um, we don't we don't think of those things in you know masculine terms. King David also had a best friend in Jonathan. It was not a gay relationship. Um, it was a friendship. And what we have also done, and you you hit on this, Alan, with the robot, you know, kind of analogy. We uh, we t- we look at a friend of mine who is also uh, same sex attraction. He would call himself a gay Christian, but he's, he's side B, and uh, he he will say you'll often see in movies. Let's say uh, there's a really close friendship. No, he was talking actually about Sesame Street. I think um, my kids are big into Sesame Street with their age, and he had mentioned how uh, I don't know what it would be called, you know the gay movement or whatever. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pigeonhole it because this is a gay guy saying this, uh, but the, the sort of the movement or the agenda or whatever, uh, they'll say things like Bert and Ernie are gay, you know, and, and, and teach your kids that, you know, so to help, you know, and, and they'll do that with other, with other movies. And his point was whenever our culture, you know, gay or straight, we, we think intimacy can only happen through genital sex that's intimacy. And as we know, and Todd and I talked about this, and I talk about it in Beyond the Battle, think about all the genital sex that happens of, of all types where there's zero intimacy whatsoever, right? I mean, there's just brokenness and emptiness and, and heartbreak and using others and objectification. I mean, we know genital sex does not the equivalent of intimacy, but our culture will look at, will look at, Two friends like David and Jonathan, and it was cultural then to give a kiss, just like it would be if you go to uh, France today. You're going to get kisses on the cheek there, and and in the first century, you had people giving holy kisses. Paul instructs you to do so. So we see that, and our culture says, "Oh, they were gay. They were having. They were in a gay relationship because because they see intimacy. Intimacy is synonymous with sex, and it's really because we've become to we've worshipped sex as a culture." Gay, straight, everything in between, we worship sex. We say you can't live without sex. You have to have sex. Todd and I last episode talked about how Jesus didn't have sex. And he's the person we all try to be, right? We're all trying to, he's the, he's the ultimate human. He was whole. He was complete. He was not insecure. He was single and was not having sex. And Paul, another great example in the church, was another single celibate uh, person. Another thing I'll mention, Alan, is Henry Nouwen. Uh, man, I I love lots of Henry Nouwen stuff, but The Return of the Prodigal Son. Holy smokes, what a good book that's been for me in 2020, dealing with my insecurities. And in the, the revised edition of 
Beyond the Battle. That's a Henry Nouwen book I just discovered in the last two years. And so that's one of the things I've added to the second edition coming out in July with Zondervan. Um, is stuff on The Return of the Prodigal Son because it is so in line with the Beyond the Battle message. He writes it way better than I do, but I really recommend that. And and Henry Nouwen, he was single, celibate. He was a priest. And from what I gather, interviews with his really close confidants after Henry Nouwen's death, uh, you know, they revealed that he was gay, that he struggled with same-sex attraction, and he did not act on that, right? As far as his uh, sex, having sex, uh, and and you'll you'll pick up on that in his reading. You'll pick up on this desire he has in the Return of the Prodigal Son, this desire he has for intimacy, uh, and he he comes to this conclusion that 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 can never be found in another person. And he doesn't give details, but you can kind of read between the lines. Like he's really struggling, and he's sort of pursuing this. And he knows that the ultimate place to find that depth of who he is as a man, as a son, his identity as a son is found in the father's love in, in, with the, the prodigal son parable being the framework of the whole book. And I love that. And I think it just gives so much more power even to what he says as a gay or same-sex attracted single celibate man because he's in the trenches. He is living this and he's saying... Man, I found this in the Father's love through Jesus. This is the gospel. The God, I found this in the gospel. And man, that book has been a really, really great, great resource uh, for me. So, Alan, I hope that's helpful. And to others listening, that I guess similar to what I said before, you know, don't conform to the patterns of this world. The patterns of this world and the patterns of this church have told us that your identity is in sex. It's in who you're having sex with. And if you're having sex, your identity is in this culturally confined idea of what a man or a woman is. And it's not. Your identity is in Christ and is a, is a son of the Father who loves you because of the gospel. Isn't that good news for all of us, every single one of us, wherever we are, on the sexuality spectrum, the struggles we have, we all have a different struggle to, to a different cross to bear, so to speak, in that. And so uh, we always, I always like talking about that subject here on the flip side because it does not get talked about uh, nearly enough in the church. And I think it is, I don't know, probably the number one thing that uh, everybody struggles with across the board. Not, not that everybody struggles with it, but if you were to survey everyone on their struggles, I think at the very top or near the very top of the heap would be at some level or another struggles when it comes to uh, sexual sin, temptation, struggles. So, man, Jesus is, he is there. He's there for us in that and makes us who we are. He makes us whole. So in today's interview, talking to Kevin DeVries, and Kevin talks about how he found wholeness in Christ, and he has really a amazing story. He'll he'll use the words himself. It's a crazy story. I mean, it's wild, and you know some of the highlights or lowlights, and not that you want to glorify struggle, but the, you know Kevin is just such a guy full of grace, and really models that. He models that that mantra that we use on the podcast that. Where grace lives, vulnerability abounds. And his ministry that he leads, Grace Explorations, 
and the base camps that he does within Grace Explorations, they they model that. It's a contagious place for men to share their vulnerable stories because they know that Grace lives there. And Kevin's story, he he hiked to the North Pole. He climbed a bunch of mountains. He was in charge of expeditions looking for Noah's Ark. He uh, has been divorced twice. He was a millionaire who ended up living in his car. I forget, for a long time, I forget the amount of time he mentions it in the interview. Uh, He finds wholeness, you know, in Jesus. And he kind of talks about how that happens and and how, how you can find that. And dude, he died recently for 15 minutes. Can, can you, raise your hand if that's happened to you. He died 15 minutes. He saw the risen Christ who spoke to him and then sent him back to this time-space continuum, and he woke up in the ambulance, and the rest is history. I mean, this is an incredible story. So sit back. And I don't want to say enjoy, but sit back and allow the Spirit to speak, speak to you through Kevin's life and, and what he's seen and experienced and the, the highs and the lows, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, allow Jesus to speak his love to you and the wholeness uh, that he is inviting you into. So uh, without further ado, this is Kevin DeVries, the founder and president of Grace Explorations. Head over to graceexplorations.com for more. And here's Kevin. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining the Flipside podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, man. This is cool because I've gone to a whole bunch of base camps. And believe it or not, I I did not intentionally skip the days you were telling your story. But I've never (laughs) actually heard your story. So I'm super pumped to hear it today. Well, maybe this is the reason why. Now you have a chance to hear it for the first time. It'll be fresh. I've only heard rumors of your story. And so now I get to hear it. I get to hear the real thing. But before we jump into your story, uh, tell me a little bit about Grace Explorations and Basecamp. And I'm sure it plays into your story, but just what is it? I can tell audience what it is, but you could tell it better than me. Uh, But we've said the word story a lot already. And I know story is a, a big piece of, uh, of what, of what Basecamp is. So just kind of give us a little glimpse into what it is, but, but why, but why it is the way it is. Um, the what is, uh, it's a place of stories for men. And we designed it specifically that way because we believe that if you reach the man, you have a chance of reaching the family. So he's the hardest guy to reach in the nuclear family unit. But um, if you get him, the chances are statistically much higher that the family will come uh, afterwards, the wife, uh, the children. Again, that's assuming that the family is still intact. Um, and we chose to focus on men because, quite frankly, a lot of our problems in our world uh, have been started by men or initiated by men. And then the converse of that is true as well. That if if that is true, and I believe it is in in many ways, then we're also the ones that can end it. Mm. So we're trying to uh, empower men to realize that. Um, they have the ability to do great harm, but they also have the ability to do great good. Grace Explorations and what Basecamp is, is this idea of men telling stories. We like to say they're dangerous stories told in safe places. Um, sometimes religious environments can be just the opposite. Hmm. Uh, safe sermons, safe stories told in dangerous places hmm. where everybody's so consumed with saying the right thing that they forget that really the, the main thing is the real thing. 
Jesus didn't ask for quote unquote right answers. He asked for real answers. And mm -hmm. then when he got people to be real, then the right thing could happen. But um, sometimes if we're not careful in religious environments, um, we create dangerous spaces. And a lot of that is systemic to the leaders. If they're not well, if they're insecure, if they're covering their own shame, then it's, it's just going to be a scapegoating process and a uh, projecting process that will involve all kinds of emotional dysfunction um, to the extent that nobody is real anymore. They're just mm. very good at being fake, which is quite frankly why a lot of people don't like going to church. Uh, it just feels unreal. Yeah. Um, it's not that the message is wrong. It just doesn't feel real. Yeah. And maybe the millennials are teaching us, you know, your generation coming up is uh, authenticity is paramount. So in a nutshell, that's what we try to do at Basecamp is just create a safe place where dangerous stories to be told primarily because we believe when that happens, um, and this is all Brene Brown material, but uh, it's this idea that, you know, shame dies in that process. And when you touch a man's shame, when you have him talk about his failures and his success, um, and he's embraced by that group, and it's safe for him to tell these difficult parts of his story, uh, something miraculous happens. His social leprosy starts to heal. Mm -hmm. And that thing that he's hiding, that white skin, that disease, if you will, uh, not in reference to, to race, but it, in reference to shame, leprosy is, you know, it has a bleaching effect mm -hmm. and it's something that's embarrassing. And so we want to um, hide that. And uh, it's back to first century again, right? You got a bunch of people yelling yeah. unclean and, yeah. and it's, it's subconscious. You don't know what's there, but you're always pushing people away because you don't feel clean. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced that at the base camps I've went to, you know, you just, you hear, you hear guys tell stories that you, you would, you would never hear in church and you, you, it, it does something I think for the guy sharing the story and it does something for the guys listening. You know, it, it, it sets a new culture of grace uh, conquering shame that, that yeah. when we're, uh, if if we if we believe in grace, which we do, we say we do at least. If we but if we really believed in grace, then vulnerability should abound. You know that's something I'll say sometimes on this podcast is where grace lives, vulnerability abounds. Because uh, and and I've seen that modeled with Grace Explorations and with Basecamp and with you, and to see that catching on uh, with men is uh it it is it is really exciting it's it's really cool to see and so uh you know we have listeners from all over but if anyone's listening that's uh in an area where there's a base camp and we'll link to that in the show notes i certainly encourage guys to come check that out and then check out some of the other groups uh beneath so why don't we uh jump into your story i mentioned i've i've heard rumors of your story and and uh, you and I have texted a little bit about kind of different components of your story. So uh, here's, here's what, I, what I've heard. And when I say rumors, I mean stuff you've mentioned at, at base camps and things like that. Um, so I know that sort of phase one of your story at, at one time, um, I think you said you were a millionaire. You ended up living in your van uh, after, you know, after that you, you, uh, yeah. for a while. were homeless and living in your van. Um, you've, uh, been, you've been divorced twice and I, and yeah. I know that, and I don't know details and, and certainly, uh, you know, share as much as you feel comfortable with. Um, 
but certainly lots of what uh, what I talk about on the podcast here and a lot of the base camp stories are, are rooted around sexual sin and struggling through that and, and overco- some overcoming, some still in the struggle, a lot of us somewhere in between. Um, so let's just kind of start with that piece of the story and then teaser for yeah. the second piece. Oh, yeah. And then you died and saw the risen Christ and he spoke to you and sent you back. Uh, to earth. So uh, how about that for uh, a part yeah, there's, two? Uh, the there's a lot, so, of, a lot of layers so, to this. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with kind of part one, just catch, catch me up, catch, catch the listeners up on, um, you know, the Kevin DeVries story. Yeah. So this feels kind of funny because, you know, when you brush, uh, when you top those peaks, because those are story, those are narrative peaks that you're talking about and actually some dramatic lows as well. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of when my kids were younger in elementary and they would have their uh, school teachers, you know, just try and orientate and get to know each other. And um, I would meet with their teachers, uh, usually in a casual type thing where it was maybe a school assembly and they'd pull me aside or whatever. And they say, man, your kids are fantastic. They're, you know, dream students. We love students like yours because they help other students. They're super sharp. They mentor other kids. Uh, they're not disruptive. They're, they're just really good students, good humans. Um, but we think that they're like not telling the truth. <laughs> they seem to exaggerate a lot because they tell us that their dad, you know, uh, climbs mountains all over the world and he's he actually skied to the north pole and, and he went <laughs> looking for noah's ark for five summers and so they're just kind of like you know we just want to encourage you to keep your kids you know tell them the truth and stuff but i would have to laugh because i'd be like well to be honest with you they're telling the truth their dad is a little yeah it's just kind of a different story and so um you know, and I, I used to be a lot more enamored with it. You know, that's the thing about shame is you have to constantly mm. be up in yourself, right? Mm. And that's the big joke right now is, yeah, Kev got bored with his story. You know, his story was getting stale. So he had to die, you know, last fall and then come back to life. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. All the other stuff wasn't sensational enough. He had to upgrade his story. But, um, okay, long story short. So I was a professional minister. Um, and I don't say that with any, there's no kind of, con- sending words in that. I don't want to diminish that. I have many friends that are, um, you know, have titles and stuff in front of their name. And so I was one of those guys and um, had one of the largest youth groups in the state of Michigan, was a national consultant for a large denomination and basically was the guy who was writing stuff that people read and and was helping the church back in the late 90s uh, transition into this whole era that is now in full bloom, uh, which is generically called postmodernism. And so a lot of what we're dealing with right now in our culture um, was planted quite a while ago in Europe, and now it's blossoming and it's full flower here in the U.S. So there's a lot of cultural um, bedrock, or I should say swamp effect that's happening right now. So I kind of was in that space, uh, was very successful, checked all the boxes, had a company at the same time that was employing a couple dozen people. So I was working with national ministries. I was working with local stuff. I was doing stuff all over the place. Um, created an incredibly lonely first marriage hmm. as a result of my high octane uh, life, this sense of drivenness. Like I have to be like the best. I can't just be, uh, you know, ordinary is like a curse word, you know, you just have to outdo yourself continually. And so you're always pushing the envelope and you just become like a machine. You're almost mm-hmm. robotic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is trauma driven because trauma does that to people. They have to externalize what they can't internalize. So I had to do all kinds of crazy stuff because I couldn't do 18 inches. I couldn't get out of my head, mm. which is, uh, 
you know, what happens with trauma, it just puts your frontal cortex on fire and you, you are trying to leave the building as quick as you can or abandon mm. the heat, the pain. And so you go into this uh, realm of externalizing everything that you can internalize. So if you do, can't do 18 inches, I say you have to do 18,000 feet. So I climbed a lot of tall mountains mm -hmm. or you have to go 18,000 miles, you know, and go to the North Pole because you're externalizing what you can't conquer or discover on in the interior geography. So the first marriage uh, ended um, in a traumatic way. Um, that's a whole other story in and of itself. But uh, it became apparent to me that there was a third party involved and that um, happened while I was preaching. And uh, so watching um, that connection being made, and I'm being a little oblique here, it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. more obvious mm -hmm. in some of the podcasts that I have, or if people want to check it out online, they can. Uh, it's all there. There's nothing to hide. But it, uh, it just basically, um, yeah, it destroyed my world. And mm -hmm. so I never wanted to get into the pulpit again. Um, had no interest in really ministry, didn't leave the faith, always felt connected with God, didn't necessarily even leave the church. Uh, it was more of a, just a ministry thing. I just didn't want to get into that space where I was a target anymore, um, where I was, you know, at the tip of the spear. I just wanted to kind of, kind of do what Moses did, just get out of the spotlight, just go into the back country and make a ton of money and, and just live for myself, which again mm -hmm. is what shame and trauma does. It makes you very selfish because you have to go shallow. You can't go deep. And if you can't go deep, you have nothing really to offer to people because people don't want the shallow stuff. I mean, they get it everywhere anyway, mm -hmm. but if they're really going to get that, if they're really going to find freedom, they have to, you have to be willing to go into the deeper waters with them, which is what your ministry does. And I appreciate it about that, about you is you're, you're very articulate um, and that's just one of your gifts, but you're also able to go deep because mm -hmm. you've gone deep and uh, you're going to have a, a greater impact by doing that. And I commend you for, for doing that, especially when it involves things with, uh, you know, human sexuality or, or specifically addiction. There's no way you can tread that water in, in the shallows. Yeah. That always goes deep waters pretty quick because our sexuality is connected to the deepest parts of who we are. And as a result, uh, the wounds that are there are deeper than other wounds that we have or the sins that are there or the shame for that matter. So uh, that blew up my first marriage. And then I went into this mode of I'm just going to make a ton of money, travel the world. Um, when I was in ministry, I took kids all over the world on missions trips. So traveled everywhere, um, dozens and dozens of countries. And then I started making a lot of money and went on adventure trips. So I would mm -hmm. climb five of the seven continental summits, ski to the North Pole, and then that led me into an expedition. I had some qualifications and through a, uh, just unforeseen circumstances, I got connected with a bunch of scientists that were looking for Noah's Ark. Um, from 2009 to 2013, I was, uh, every summer I was on top of Mount Ararat. And my job was mostly to get uh, the smart guys up and down the mountains. So I mm -hmm. wasn't uh, parked up there as long as the other guys were, but we were doing everything scientifically that we could to conclude once and for all if remnants of Noah's Ark was indeed uh, not only generally speaking on Mount Ararat, but specifically the Eastern Plateau. And that was, a, that was an epic narrative. It was a huge story. And I felt like, boy, if we found the Ark, I mean, it would be the second biggest discovery or the second biggest uh, chapter in human history, apart from the resurrection of Christ, it would change all theologies from archaeology to zoology. It's not just a spiritual argument that you're having. It's it's geopolitical. It's environmental. It's academic. It's 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 uh, it's the watershed moment. It's one of those climactic 
meta narratives that we have in human history that if we could prove that yes, indeed, there was an arc, and yes, it is at 16,800 feet of Mount Ararat, it would have reshaped everything. But internally, I think if we had found the arc, it would have, for me, been a huge way of, of erasing all the past failures. Mm-hmm. And somehow this would have trumped everything else, and I would never have to speak about my failures again because, after all, I was part of the group that did what? Found mm-hmm. Noah's Ark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't realize what was going on. Two narratives were happening at once. It didn't start clicking for me until the final year that we were there. And uh, incidentally, after the first marriage, remarried. Um, and then that ended actually in divorce in 2000 uh, or after nine years. And I can only speak for my part of that story. Um, it's very difficult for people to be married to people who've already divorced themselves. Uh, and again, that's what trauma does. It separates you from you. So you're not even living in your story. You're not emotionally available to anybody, including yourself. Mm. And so there was a lot of loneliness in that marriage as well. Um, and I was, you know, internally very lonely, didn't realize it because I had a lot of activity, but my interior geography would be described as a desert. There wasn't really anything growing. Uh, it was just a very desolate place. It was certainly not in a garden. There was no water. Mm. There was nothing that was growing there. It was just desolate. And so I could, I couldn't create a garden, you know, for either marriage because I wasn't even living one in myself. And so two human, you know, two souls suffer through that. And I'm speaking poetically, but it, it, uh, it becomes emotional, you know, when mm-hmm. you live it out. Um, so, um, yeah, the second marriage ended. Uh, so I came on the mountain in 2013, now dealing with a double failure. It's almost like cancer coming back. You know, the second time it's mm. harder. Mm. And I felt like this second divorce was kind of like, wow, I thought I should have learned everything I did to the first one. Um, but I brought all the stuff. And again, I can only speak for myself. And it, it is involving two people. But I brought a lot of my wounds, my lies, my core lies uh, that were not penetrating who I really was into the second marriage and just basically replicated mm-hmm. who I was. And that ended up uh, in a in a divorce, uh, failed marriage. And then I uh, was a million net worth guy and lost all the money in the last recession. So now I've got a couple things going against me. Actually, everything that destroys a man, right? Mm. Relational failure, financial failure, uh, loss of home, ended up living in my vehicle for five years because I couldn't um, get myself into a space where I was comfortable going into an empty room where the wife and the kids were not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just didn't trust me with me. Mm-hmm. And that sounds really crazy because I've climbed some very dangerous mountains all over the world. I've done some dangerous stuff. You know, I ran the 2013 Boston Marathon and missed the bomb by, you know, minutes. I've done crazy stuff. Uh, we sh- somebody should have died looking for the art because that was a whole other story, which by the way, became a movie um, that went nationwide in 2015. The principal photography and cinematography was done in 2013 on the mountain on Ararat. That became a movie. Gary Sinise actually narrated that. It went nationwide through Fathom Pictures and you can get that on Amazon Prime or uh, Netflix or whatever. Uh, and so a lot of speaking came from that, but I found myself in 2013 at 4,200 meter camp, which is about 14,200 feet or so. And because of the geopolitical tension in the area, uh, we always had a security detail with us every year. So on this particular year, we had a Navy SEAL, uh, an Army Ranger, and a um, Special Ops Air Force medic. 
um, who I couldn't get past that camp because parts of his calf were not there anymore. They had been shot off. So hmm. he's kind of hobbling around. And they pulled me aside um, kind of collectively, but individually. And I'm synthesizing some of the stuff that they mentioned to me to help abbreviate the talk. But essentially what they were saying was, is you got what we got. And I thought, well, arc fever, what are we, you know, what are we talking about here? And they said, no, you've got PTSD. We don't know what happened to you, but you're, you're not hmm. here. Hmm. I said, what, you know, why would you say that? And God knew that it took some special ops guys, you know, some masculine dudes. I mean, these are warriors. These are guys that have a special skill set to not bring people into the world, but take them out hmm. and can do that without really thinking. They just have skills in that area. So these, these are, these are man's man. You know, they are, they are guys, they're warriors. They're King David types. They're spiritual, but they've also, um, you know, they have blood on their hands, which um, is a heavy burden to bear, even in, even in war. So I'm listening to these guys and they're saying, well, when we look in your eyes, you've got that 2000 yard vacuous stare lights mm. are on nobody's home. That's usually indicative of, you know, some trauma in your life. And we don't know what created that, but it's there. And then secondly, and this is where I really made sense to me. They said, when you talk, uh, you're always fearing your future. Something about the future creates tremendous anxiety within you, which is again, trauma you're you're always waiting for the next thing to happen and then uh secondly you're always punishing your past which again is what trauma does it it distances you from your story so you always are filled with shame and so you're always speaking ill of yourself and your past and you're punishing that like that's somehow going to make the present better but they said uh you're never now you're mm -hmm. just you're not here and now I'm connecting to dots. So all these years leading up to this, I'm collecting, 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 right? You go to this seminar, you go to that conference, you read this book, you meet that person, you go on this climb, you do this, you do that. And now all of a sudden in the course of a, of a summer, um, staring down the idea of living in a vehicle and, and a second marriage ending and bankruptcy right there on its heels and other issues uh, during the perfect storm of the recession, I find myself starting to actually connect dots and I'm like, wow, now I have some breadcrumbs. I've got a trail mm. that I can follow and I can discover why both of my marriages were very lonely, why I did the things that I did, why I said the things that I did, because to me it was a mystery. I just couldn't, uh, seem to get better, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that led then to, um, a lot of discovery, joined a men's group that you're kind of a part of loosely, uh, went to men's retreats, uh, many of whom you know lead those kind of in the wild heart vein uh, where they would go after a man's heart and they would build community and brotherhood, which was totally unknown to me because when you become a denominational big shot like I was, at least back then, I think they've gotten better now, uh, you just have to become better at hiding than the next guy. Hmm. If you wanna go vertical on the leadership scale, you have to get better at just, yeah, Keep your nose clean. <laughs> don't, don't get honest. And for mm. God's sake, don't ever get real. Just mm. say the right thing and the ladder's all there for you to climb. And now I'm confronted with this idea of, wow, I think I've missed something here. These guys mm. actually tell their stuff and other guys like are, are like, yeah, that's okay. I struggle too. And hey, let's, let's get better together. It's totally uh, un, unknown to me. It was foreign to me, even after... Uh, years of professional ministry and practice. Um, so that was super healing, doing life with men. It's kind of like what I say now that if you uh, don't journey together, you will die alone. And that's part of a North Pole story that I give because that's 
essentially what happens in extreme conditions like the Arctic. If you mm. fall into the Arctic Ocean, uh, you're pretty much dead unless you're with others because mm. uh, you'll be a popsicle when they pull you out of the water. And you've got just minutes, you know, before hypothermia sets in and you're, you're on your way to, to dying within a short matter of minutes after that. So in many ways, I'm trying to get guys to think in the context of, okay, I know it's hard to think that you're in war, but you are uh, backdropped against a divine romance. Both of these things are happening all at once, but you are at war. And until you recognize that, until you recognize you have an arch enemy um, who is very uh, deliberate and very vicious, he knows your, your weaknesses. And he knows how to manipulate those as well as grace. Grace mm -hmm. also knows your weaknesses and also knows how to let the light shine through those. But until you get rid of that shame and start telling your story and allow that shame to be healed, which is a vertical thing, sin is a vertical uh, relationship where you confess and God forgives, but shame is healed. Like the book of James talks about how you confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. And I think that word healing has more than just, um, you know, forgiveness or, mm. or a spiritual dimension. I think there's an emotive and emotional dimension there that happens as well uh, when you start doing open life with men. So that began my trek. And then, you know, the movie came out, a lot of speaking opportunities came, spoke to tens of thousands of guys over a, a pretty much a three-year window from 2016 to 2000, front part of 2019. And then the last, um, year, year and a half, I've been more focused on not so much being a man with a message that creates moments, but I've been trying to do more about uh, motivating men with a message uh, that then can uh, gain some momentum and then hopefully become a movement that grows to the extent that it begins to organically, naturally multiply, which is happening. We just started another base camp in Midland. That's our ninth one. We launched that on Friday night. I just got off the phone this morning with a guy in Traverse City that um, will help us launch one there. So that'll be, and then we've got a couple more this year, I think. So we'll probably be at a dozen base camps impacting a couple thousand guys doing the same thing that we started in founders of March, 2017. The formula is very simple. It's just, you know, tell Christ centered gospel oriented, uh, stories that have a dramatic narrative arc, preferably where a man is talking more about his failure than his success and how God redeemed his failure and then allow the Q&A to happen afterwards and uh, organic table discussions if necessary. But just getting guys into a, a place where they can uh, hear a man's story. And now we have other tracks that they can get involved in where um, they can go to our story retreats. And there we'll take them through their story and help them to not only tell their story. It's not like a Toastmaster type of thing where you get everybody applauding. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. It's getting you to the place where you own your story so that in the owning of that story and the telling of that story, your shattered sword, which is emblematic of what Aragorn's character was in the Lord of the Rings, he was mm. carrying around a shattered sword for most of the story, not in the movies, but in the, the print version. And until his sword was reforged, until his shame was overcome of his own lineage, of, of and which is emblematic of our lineage to Adam, you know, we all have this original sin that we're juggling. Yeah. Uh, and until we recognize that our original glory is actually stronger than our original sin, all we'll do is police original sin and we will never pursue the original glory. But that's the beauty of that story with Aragorn is, you know, he was able to turn that corner and uh, let go of the ranger, this lonely, you know, isolated cowboy mm -hmm. figure of a man, kind of an iconic Western figure, you know, the man of no name, kind of a Clint Eastwood type 
to uh, a king that did things in community and was leading and was generative and things were coming out of him that were not only for him, but for, you know, for a kingdom. And then at that point, his sword was reforged. And so we tell guys, when you own your story, at that point, your sword becomes reforged and it's unique to your hand and it's your story and it becomes your revelation uh, word of your testimony, right? That's how we defeat the enemy by the blood mm-hmm. of the lamb, which is Bible stuff. Uh, it's the cross, it's the crucifixion, it's admitting that you've done wrong, confessing your sin and repenting. And then the second half of that is is the telling of our stories, our testimonies, that that's actually a double-edged sword. It's, it's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's all that stuff uh, that can happen. And that's what really excites me right now. Maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it's also, we could jump into my you know near-death experience, but having come back from that now, it's much more clear to me now that um, it's about empowering people. It's about helping men tell their stories. And if that can happen, then it'll never just be about me which uh, is why I think I was given a second chance is to come back and be part of something that's always bigger than me. There's really three stories that are always floating around. There's my story. You have a my story. Then there's our story. And some people get to that second level. Most people are enamored with their own story because they can't even get outside their own story. So they're just, it's always selfish. It's always um, singular, myopic. And then when healing starts to happen, then they start getting into this idea of our story. Wow, we're part of a movement. You know, we're part of a kingdom. We're part of a community. And then on the third level, which I think great souls, this is where they live. This is where they inhabit is this idea of being involved in the story Mm. where now they're into the God story, the big epic narrative that we're all supposed to be living Uh, where we understand good and evil and we understand the parts that they play in all of our lives. And we understand how God uses both good and evil for his own purposes. Then you get these Genesis 45 and Genesis 50 type moments where you begin to see in the totality of your life that uh, the bad in some crazy way was maybe meant to be to put you in the right place at the right time with the right people. Like Joseph said to his brothers mm-hmm. through their betrayal and through their murderous threats, they sold him into slavery, but it was the only way that prison became the only passage to the palace that, that could have happened. And so he was able to see that, yeah, it really wasn't my brothers that brought me to Egypt. It was actually God. He used my brother's betrayal similar to how Judas had to betray Christ. And so Christ greeted him as the friend in the garden of Gethsemane. I think we have to be very careful with those who betray us and also our own betrayal like Peter did. He, no one betrayed Peter. He betrayed himself, which he had to because he probably would have been uh, not worthless, but he would have been useless to the kingdom if he hadn't gotten in his own way, stumbled like the scandal on the Greek word, you know, the cross is the scandal. It's a scandal on, it's a stumbling stone that every soul has to stumble upon. You don't uh, grab a hold of, you don't chase grace. You don't ascend into grace. You stumble into it. Uh, literally by your own failures. And um, that's where I think um, we're kind of at now as a movement is just allowing guys to, to see that they're part of just this larger story. And so that was our question last night at base camp. Um, We had about 60 or 70 guys under a tent and it was fantastic. I mean, we were there for three hours um, between, you know, drinking beer or not drinking beer or sitting around campfires or hearing a talk and Q and A and prayer circles and table discussions. And it was all centered around this idea of what story are you actually living in? Mm-hmm. Your story is so small that it's consumed with all the 
political nonsense that's going on right now is, is your whole day spent thinking about masks? Like, is your life that small? Mm. Is your story that small that you can't even get beyond something as idiosyncratic as that, right? Yeah, right. And I'm right. just human as anybody else, and I can get on those stories really quick, but that's not the big story. There's a much, much larger story that's going on right now. Um, we're in a cosmic chess match and the king is now being moved on the chessboard. You don't move the king very often on a chessboard, but we're seeing that central piece being moved right now. And that's where I think we're seeing a lot of chaos because we're, you know, I'm not uh, a prophecy expert and uh, I, I don't ever really want to be because most of them are wrong. <laughs> but I will say this, uh, prophecy is winding itself down. There's not a lot of checks boxes to check anymore. And maybe just maybe that some of this chaos is necessary to, to bring the end game. Right. Hmm. Yeah, man, that's good stuff. Uh, I'm wondering if you, and you've, you've hit on pieces of this. I'm wondering if you can share, you know, if, if somebody's listening and they can relate to that season where you are on the mountain and it was a, it was a mystery to you why you were the way you were, you know, that was, you can, you can get to a point of realizing, wow, I, I, I'm kind of messed up, but I don't, I don't know any way. I, I don't know what to do about it. I, I have no, you know, I don't know how to get out of this. What would you say um, changed from then to, to now? So maybe, uh, Roughly, um, roughly speaking, what's different about you today than in when you were in the thick of yeah. of that period uh, when things were sort of all out of whack and all all out of you know collaboration? What's different, and what could someone do uh, practically, so to speak, um, to get to a place of healing? So um, another epiphany that happened in 2013 that I just couldn't even get my mind's wrapped around. It's like C.S. Lewis always talked about that the letters of God are so large, you have to see them from another dimension. They're written on our planet in such large letters that we mm -hmm. have to get to this astronaut of awe arena, if you will, to be able to comprehend them. And what happened to me in 2013 was not only the talk that I had with those guys, which put me on this trail of, okay, let's, let's get to the root of this trauma here. Let's, let's get right down and drill because uh, I don't want any relationships to be adversely impacted uh, ever again because of, of issues that I just can't really process. So here's what happened. Um, I'm, a, I'm a metaphor type of guy and God knows that. So he basically stuck me in the middle of a metaphor. The mountain that we were climbing is called uh, Mount Ararat. When you translate that into uh, the Turkish language, it's Agrida. When you translate that, uh, its meaning, it means the mountain of pain or the painful mountain. Hmm. If you've ever climbed it, you'll know why. Hmm. It is, uh, yeah, it's just unbelievable the um, electrical activity that happens, the lenticular clouds that form. I mean, it's almost biblical. It's, it, I've never had winds. I've climbed all over the world. I've never dealt with hurricane force winds or, or electrical activity like we have on that mountain. It's just um, because it's a standalone kind of in a, in a large plain area. So it develops its own weather system. Um, anyway, what I felt like God was saying to me in 2013 was your heart is like the ark. It is encased in ice, inaccessible to you. Um, unfeeling leprous, maybe another word. And I am going to slowly over the next 
ensuing years, I'm going to defrost your heart. I'm going to chisel away at the ice, just like you're drilling down and excavating 40 feet into the polar ice cap of Mount Ararat. I'm going to uh, keep drilling and I'm going to, I'm going to treat you like a patient. And I'm going to be a very persevering physician. I'm going to use everything at my disposal to heal you. Uh, and to do that, I'm going to have to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a good construct for suffering in the Western church. Uh, but suffering is, is a necessary ingredient in the soul's journey towards maturity. And if we uh, don't want to feel pain, if we don't think that pain should be part of our theology or, or our uh, life experience, then we have basically taken the best tool that God has out of his hands to mature us and to develop the, um, the incarnation of Christ in us, if you will, mm-hmm. where people can see the image of Christ in us. So suffering is a huge part of that. And I didn't like it, but he was basically just saying to me, look, um, if you don't feel, you won't heal. If you remain frozen and stuck in your story, unwilling and unable to deal with those past issues, um, I can't heal you. And unfortunately, to heal you, you have to feel. And so I have to do what I have to do without anesthesia. You have to feel Mm. this pain Mm -hmm. over again. That's a whole other message in of itself, how he got me back to that day that I obliquely described in church, but it took listening to a cassette tape of that message. It was in the late nineties mm. and listening to that tape again in 2013 for me to be placed right back in that place. And then God did some healing work in my heart because I saw a little bit, just a glimpse of what he saw that day. And it wasn't what I saw. And it had a lot to do with grace. She actually became a character in a book series that I wrote that needs to be edited and done and may even have some cinematic applications. But um, that was the seed. And then to move forward. So everything that's happened really since 2013 has been about thawing out a human heart. Um, and I've done it through the, the four streams, if you will. Uh, there's an anomaly in the first couple chapters of Genesis where instead of a uh, tributaries or rivers going into or I would say river uh, tributaries and streams going into a river. Like for instance, in Michigan, the Grand River starts like in the Jackson area and then spews out into Lake Michigan uh, and Grand Haven. And in between that, you're a Lansing guy or were, you know, the looking glass and the red cedar. And then here in West Michigan, the thorn apple and the rope. I mean, all these rivers are all pouring into this, this main ribbon that goes through our, our state. But in the Bible, it's, it's, uh, it's an anomaly. They said out of the river came four streams. And so it's, it's given this idea that the current is coming from the river and pushing into these streams and from those four streams. And this is nothing really new. I just uh, contextualize it for our community. I tell guys the best four ways to heal are um, get involved in community and don't make the mistake that just going to Sunday morning is community. That's actually, for the most part, an anonymous experience meant to edify and empower you. But it's not community because you're not sharing stuff about yourself or vice versa to other people. Uh, in many ways, it's it's just that. It's an anonymous experience that's meant to bring you to the presence of God, give you information, have a divine experience. Um, so community is huge. What does community look like? It's where you do life together. It's where you share your stories together. It's where you care about each other. The army knows how to do this. They put guys in fire teams or squads because if they just keep the army large enough, nobody cares about anybody because nobody knows anybody. So if, when the bullets fly and the lightning strikes and the thunder roars, you've got to have people that care about each other. And the only way they can care about each other is they have to know each other, right? Yeah. Which is why a lot of people don't feel like they're being cared for because nobody knows them. Mm. Um, the second thing I tell them is church. There's things that can happen in the church. All those 
other S's that we talked about are a way to mature through sermons and songs and worship, sacraments, uh, studies. That's all part of the journey as well. Uh, thirdly is this idea of uh, counseling and therapy, which um, Naaman's story in the Old Testament is very emblematic of this, where I feel like a lot of people just want to put their hand on the TV or read a book and all of a sudden they're better. But Naaman uh, was a Persian army commander and he had to, you know, take seven dips into the muddy Jordan River. I've been in the Jordan and it is, it's, it's silty. I wouldn't say it's dirty, but it's not clean like some like, you know, Torch Lake or something along those lines. But he had to do something that was uncomfortable because it was the only way his leprosy, again, emblematic of shame could have been healed. And I think for a lot of men, they have to humble themselves, get involved with the soul surgeon is what I call them, who can extract these things over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a place for therapy and counseling. Fourthly is this idea of contemplation that your greatest healing. And at the end of the day, the other three won't work. Um, if you do not participate in what I call contemplation or meditation, where it's just you and almighty God, and he is speaking to you and you are listening and you are speaking back and you have this Job like experience where all of your questions, uh, all of your unanswerable questions are not being answered because God instead is giving you himself. He's yeah. giving, he's answering your un. Uh, answerable questions with his unquestionable self. He's turning the table on you and he's like, I can't answer these questions because they're not actually good questions to begin with. But here's what I'll do instead. I'll just give you me. And then that would be enough. And then to accelerate to the last part, um, I don't know if it, that's a whole other story in of itself, but you know, leading up to my near-death experience this past fall, um, and then coming out of that, and it took a good chunk of last fall to recover because it it you know, my heart stopped beating for up to 15 minutes and it was a miracle that the right people were in the right place at the right time. Um, but that also was another opportunity to realize that, hey, the mission is not done and I, I need to come back to be part of a story that's bigger than me. Otherwise, my rescue um, would be belittled, I think. You know, it, it, it was pretty obvious that God took incredibly... He, it was exquisite. After everything went very, very wrong, everything has to go right to the extent that in my particular case, having a cardiac arrest, uh, it comes with about a 3% survival rate. Mm -hmm. So 97% of us that have cardiac arrests are never found in time. Uh, and typically it takes a shock to your system. Um, the paddles, if you will, to um, overcome your own electrical issues. So CPR doesn't bring a lot of us back. And that was also proven as well, because I had people that worked on me for 10 minutes or so that were actually nurses that happened to be driving by. And um, they never got a pulse, but they at least kept the blood flowing. But it wasn't until the, um, the fire department, the paramedics actually came that they shocked me back. Um, and so you got to kind of wonder, you know, um, he took a lot of time to make sure that everybody was on the right schedule. Mm -hmm. that the light was right. That the part of my running path was populated. It was a busy road, but other parts of it were not that I ran by, you know, an EMS station on this particular route so that rescue could happen rather rapidly. That it just so happened that two nurses were driving by that worked in the ER that knew exactly what to do. Um, you know, it was, it was humbling because you look back and you're like, boy, I, 
there must be something for me to do and be. It's not all about doing, but there's another mission that's not completed yet. And, and God's taking great pains to make sure that the second chance is there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep jumping into that piece of your story because it's super unique and I think super fascinating. Uh, people want to know what's on the other side. Is there another side? I, I think uh, afterlife, heaven, hell, uh, man, that's a, that's a huge question people have. Even Christians wrestle with, you know, and, and kind of, man, is that really real? And so, and not that, um, I'm just curious to share with me and, and with, uh, with listeners, what was it that you saw during the, or experienced during those, those, uh, you said it was 15 minutes, uh, yeah, uh, when, when, I don't know, is it safe to say you were dead in those 15 minutes? I mean, what, what, what's yeah, the correct, um, there was brain activity. Uh, yeah. your brain can actually live. There's synoptic fire, you know, synoptic fire fibers that are still firing. Um, even after the heart stops beating, but technically after you're, you know, you have about three minutes without oxygen. It's the big three rule effect, you know, three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, 30 days without food, three hours without, you know, shelter and hypothermia sets in. So yeah, it was a normal day by all accounts. It was September 21st, um, of last fall. It was a hot uh, night. It was about 80 degrees. I wasn't feeling all that great, but I wasn't feeling like I was going to have a cardiac arrest either. And uh, so I didn't have a shirt on. I just had my running shorts on, running shoes, no identification, left the uh, place that I was staying at and did my typical five and a half mile loop. Um, part of the loop went past uh, Cascade Cemetery in Cascade, Michigan, right on the southeast uh, side of Grand Rapids. And because I wasn't feeling well and my times were off, I, I didn't even have a watch with me because I was just like, I know I'm just not going to do well today. It's too hot. I don't run really well in heat. And I had some, I thought maybe some flu-like symptoms that were encroaching. So I thought, well, I'll just sweat this thing out like I typically do. And went into the graveyard and there's two entrances to the graveyard and it makes kind of a, at that point, they've actually added on to this graveyard since then, but it was just a, a a U a kind of a giant U-turn, if you will. So I made a giant U-shape, went into the cemetery and then looped back out uh, on a different drive. And in the middle between those two drives um, was a person all dressed in white. And again, I am fully alive right now. I am just taking a walk through the cemetery because I'm not feeling all that well. But you could argue maybe that the space-time continuum was collapsing um, with another dimension. So this dimension. is when, just to stop you for a second, because I'm I'm picturing you, you're running through the, the cemetery or this is when you I was were walking at this point. Yeah. I ran to the cemetery. I passed the EMS station. It's right on Buttrick and okay. 30th and there's an EMS station there. And then right as you about another, I don't know, quarter or half mile down, there's a cemetery on the left and I wasn't feeling all that well. So I just stopped running. And all I was doing was just okay. walking to the yard, just trying just to cool before you had the, before you had yeah. the cardiac arrest. Okay. Yeah. But there's somebody all dressed in white in the, in the cemetery. And I huh. remember thinking, it's kind of weird. And, and they're kneeling their, their back, his back. It's a, it's a man, it's a masculine form. His back is towards me and he's kneeling around a gravestone and he's doing some arranging and, and there's dirt. And I thought, that's just kind of weird. I wouldn't like, why would you wear all white, you know, doing that type of job? I just thought that was just strange to me. Didn't think anything of it. No facial recognition, never turned around. He was just busy working on a grave. And that was that I walked to the back of that cemetery and this is key because it shows you that I wasn't hallucinating. This actually happened. 
when they taped my my story two days later in the hospital, um, I was able to recite uh, just about verbatim what was on the back of one of the gravestones. So I walked to the back corner of the graveyard, and in that graveyard was an older graveyard that they had a transplant um, from an area where they built 96 back in 1966. It was called uh, Cook Cemetery. I was in Cascade Cemetery, so they moved all these older graves and put this iron wrought fence around it and on the headstone it said you know uh these graves represent cook cemetery that was moved in 1966 because of the building of what we now know as i-96 and um i read that and then i got out of the cemetery ran down the hill it was downhill uh then i ended up on cascade road which is a busy road and then right at the entrance to pine ridge elementary school which was really fortuitous because uh there was a lot of fire trucks that showed up because it was a, an echo call which for those that are first responders, that's man down, um, you know, no pulse, no life. So um, the next thing I remember was looking down at my body and seeing a lifeless body on the trail right at the entrance to Pine Ridge Elementary School. And it is a ridge. And then the next thing I remember was, because I believe we're a trichotomy, I believe that we are first and foremost a spirit. It's the God particle in us, if you will. It's the eternal, it's the immortal part of us that lives forever in one place or the other. Um, it's what the prophet Jeremiah talked about, how God knew us before we were in the womb, that I think we were some kind of luminescent idea in God's vast, uh, unfathomable mind. And he, it was a dream that he had, a spark of who Noah was going to be. But to make that idea happen, he needed to uh, have your mom and dad come together to bring that spark to life to physical flesh mm -hmm. and then someday Noah's body uh, is going to fail him and then his spirit will take over incorporate a glorious new body because Jesus Christ gave us the template it'll be it'll be real it'll be substantial but it'll also be in another dimension where you won't be bound by same same laws of gravity and physics that we are so it's it's like what Christ did after his resurrection he could walk through walls he could suddenly appear or disappear but he also was tangible yeah. You could see his wounds. You could do what um, Thomas did and, and poke your hole through his wound. And he, and he was hungry. He would eat fish. So he's obviously in that space of, yeah, he's kind of fully human, but he's also divine. And you could argue that we are that as well, that um, not necessarily divine, but that we are spiritual beings that happen to have a body that also has a mind. And so I felt my spirit disconnect from my body felt completely natural, actually felt like a massive relief, like, man, finally, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm who I should be. I am who I was. Like the poet said, I found the face that I had before I was born. Mm. I'm not sure if that was Woodworth or Longfellow or who that was, but, um, and then I soared up over the ridge, Pine Ridge, past the elementary school, and back to the graveyard, which is on the very top of that ridge, Cascade Cemetery. Now I'm facing that man who is dressed in white. His back is no longer towards me. He is looking at me. We are face to face, but the light is so blinding. It's not hurting me, but it is blinding me to the extent that I can't make out anything other than a masculine form. And um, again, I'm in another space right now. So the clock is ticking and I'll take you back to Kronos time here in a minute, but I'm in Kairos time. Yeah, by the clock, it was probably 15, 20 minutes max total. Um, I know that they worked on me CPR-wise for 10 minutes or so. 
I know exactly how long it took from the time the 9-11 call was made to the time they put the first shock on me because I have the medical report. What we don't know is how long I was dead before they started working on me or before that clock started ticking. And so it usually takes a little bit of time for your body to look dead, right? Mm -hmm. You don't just Mm -hmm. drop and, oh, it looks dead. No, it takes some time for the blood to drain and for you to have this pallid gray look. Uh, In the meantime, I'm having this uh, other dimensional experience, this near-death experience where the brain activity is still there, but my heart is not beating. There's no pulse. And so in that space, I came back to the graveyard. The person that was uh, in all white is now facing me. Uh, people are like, do you think it was angelic? And I'm like, no. And they said, well, why would you, why don't you think it was angelic? I said, well, unless the angel comes in disguise in the biblical narrative, it's always fraught with great amount of fear. You know, an eight foot tall uh, figure gleaming like a burning ember from you know a fireplace uh, is enough to shock anybody to death mm-hmm. and i didn't feel that there was absolutely no fear there was no sense of he needed to explain who he was i felt like he knew me and i knew him in fact i would say that it felt like in many ways we were brothers on on the first level that we shared the same father there was definitely a brotherly connection Secondly, I felt like this is my captain. This is why I've started base camps. This is why I'm working with companies as a band because this is the high captain. But then something even transcended that, which is hard for us as Americans to get our mind wrapped around because we haven't grown up in royalty, um, is this idea that he's my king. And he's the man who I've pledged my highest allegiance to. He's the man that I gave my life to years ago. And at one point gave away everything in my early 20s to follow him. Everything. I just had nothing left, just like the disciples, just dropped everything and followed him into the ministry. Um, but I also felt tremendous light coming out of him to the extent that it was light that darkness never touched, that it was pre, pre-darkness light, if I can say it that way. It was, it was light that existed before the concept of darkness was even conceived. Um, maybe you could say it was capital L light, right? Mm-hmm. Which is in the Bible that Christ is often referred to as the light. And then you could argue in first Colossians, or not first, but Colossians 1.15 about this idea that uh, the cosmic Christ, that the Christ is um, the center of all creation. And we get caught up and enamored with Jesus, who was a historical person that Christ came into, right? God had a dream. Christ was from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world. If you look at Ephesians 1 and uh, John chapter 1 and then Colossians 1, uh, he's been with the Trinity since the beginning, but then Christ inhabited the body of, of Jesus, the historical figure for 33 years. So people are like, what do you look like? Well, it's like, it's immaterial. Mm-hmm. Christ looked like Jesus for 33 years. Who knows what he looks like now? It's immaterial. You can't uh, put Christ into um, a human context. He defies that. There's a historical Jesus, and then there's the cosmic Christ that lives on after Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will. Um, and so he's part of this Holy Trinity. And so, I just felt like incredible light, not blinding, not hurting, but just illuminating, very warm and welcoming, kind of like the type that you would look for in a cabin in the middle of a woods that you were lost in, just or a lighthouse on some strange and savage sea as you're um, traversing that, you know, on a ship. It's just welcoming. It's something that you're running towards, not from. It's not something that you're afraid of that's going to reveal something, but it's something that is going to bring warmth and safety to your soul. Secondly, I felt a lot of um, love, that there was no fear in this space. Um, I felt like he and I belonged to each other, and that's all that mattered in that moment. He didn't, it wasn't a cosmic Santa Claus moment where all my goods and all my, 
all my good things and all my bad things were being weighed against each other. And I had to give an account. There was no need to recite Bible verses. There was no um, church. There was, there's nobody there except for Christ, which is really how I think things end for all of us is we have to face Christ first. And if he knows us and we know him, uh, he becomes the gate to God. He becomes the entrance, the hall to heaven, if you will. But if there is not a relationship there and we tend to make this into some kind of moral code, like mm. we're going to work our way into heaven and it's not, it's a relationship. Does Jesus speak to you? And do you speak to him? Do you have a relationship with him? Would he know you in that moment? And would you know him both? Um, and then in the third thing that I felt was not just um, light and love, but I felt life. Like this was life that death can never conquer. Um, yes, the body of Christ died historically. Yes, it was resurrected. But there's this part of Christ that is immortal, that is untouchable, that death can never defeat. And it's why he was rose from the dead, because he is undefeatable. Death cannot hold this person in its grave. And everything he touches comes back to life. And that's part of my story, too. That's a whole other message is this idea that you know, we are so busy praying for God to heal these things and to reconcile these things. And we get into these Lazarus moments where we're just ticked off at God because he didn't come in time, right? Where you're late. You know, if you had showed up, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And I think God is constantly reminding us that maybe the best plan that he has is not reconciliation, is not restoration or revival or reformation or whatever the R word you want to put in there. I think his highest form of redemption since the beginning of time has been resurrection. And the truth of that is you have to die first. You have to be the seed in the ground that Jesus talked about over and over and over again. You have to die first. And then from that death uh, comes incredible life. And had he have pulled me into himself in that moment, I think he would have become literally the portal, the stargate. If you're a, you know, a sci-fi fan, he would have become the gate to heaven, the gate to God and to glory. Uh, but he didn't. And instead he turned and as he was turning, I felt like these words came to me like leaf, like a leaf blowing in the wind. He wasn't even speaking directly at me. It was like the words carried as he turned. And he said very succinctly and very um, clearly um, these words. He just said, it's not your time, uh, period, dramatic pause. Your mission is not yet complete. And then the next thing I remember was waking up in the ambulance. Uh, the gurney was jostling. The uh, lights were beeping. I was trying to speak, but they had an oxygen mask over me. Uh, and then I got wheeled into the, um, the hospital and uh, some family and friends were visiting. And I kept asking the same questions over and over dozens of mm -hmm. times because I, I, I couldn't comprehend what the answer was, but I could ask the question. <laughs> And then began the subsequent healing after that. And my, my big takeaways from all that were uh, what you believe now in the time-space continuum that God gives you will determine where you belong in eternity. And after death, there is judgment and there is no opportunity for you to now all of a sudden believe, right? Mm. That has to be done now. And so grace, as powerful as she is, if I can personify her in a maiden form, as powerful as grace is, her power is limited to time. She can't undo things in eternity that time didn't already decide. And so I encourage people, now is the time to pledge your highest allegiance to Christ. I don't really lead people a lot in sinner's prayer because I think that somehow becomes magic to them. Like, okay, I can just do whatever I want because I prayed that prayer. And, 
And there's nothing wrong with that prayer, but I don't think people a lot of times even know what they're doing when they pray that prayer. So now I just say, you know what? Why don't you pledge your highest allegiance to Christ? Why don't you admit that you've done wrong? Why don't you confess your sins, repent? God is faithful and just to forgive you those things. Uh, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean, take them down the whole Romans road thing for those of you that are that have done that in the past. But at the end of the day, what you're really asking people to is, is stop having fire insurance. This is not some cosmic checklist that you go through. Uh, have a relationship with your savior. Get to know him as Lord. Get to know him as your your brother, your captain, your king. And uh, that way, when that moment hits someday, and it will for all of us, because we have that in common, you're going to be able to relax and know that at the end of the day, as crazy as the times that we're living in, if you have Christ, this is as bad as it gets. If you don't have Christ, this is about as good as it gets. Mm. So it'll give you context for the chaos that we're living in right now. You'll be able to just say, well, you know what? This is about as bad as it gets, so I'm not going to get too worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it probably has to get bad before it gets really, 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 really good forever. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. I have one more question, and it's it feels like it's uh, it's out of context now. Uh, that was a lot of awesome stuff. So it's like you ended a great sermon, and now I have this sort of kind of tongue-in-cheek <laughs> question. Um, How did we go to the bathroom on the mountain? <laughs> uh, did uh, Adam and Eve have belly buttons? No. Um, <laughs> What I'm wondering is, you know, as you share your story that, you know, I mean, I died, I saw the risen Christ, he spoke to me. Uh, what do you say, and this still has a serious you know, undertone behind the question, what do you say to someone that just says, that guy's crazy, his brain is playing tricks on him, um, he's nuts, listen to him, you know, that, that couldn't have happened, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm asking that because there's probably some listeners thinking that right now, um, you know, what would you what what would you say to them in a you know in a in a loving way? I mean, you experienced yeah. this, so so what, what, how how would you respond well, to that question? Fortunately, there is a plethora. There's a there's actually a, a genre of this out there now. So I spent um, time with Don Piper last fall. Him and I, uh, he spoke first, and then I had to get up after him. And I said, "Dude, you do you died way better than I did." Ah, you know, guys, are which which one is he? Because I know there's a few kind of popular Wait. books out there, and I haven't really read yeah. any of them. But I know they're sort of similar titled and and whatnot. Um, this is the Ninety Minutes in Heaven. Okay, and that became a film that Christian Hayden played in. You know, the Darth Vader, the the middle aged Darth. Uh, it was well done, the film and the book both. And it's a true story. I mean, he was, they um, basically, you know, they were ready to, there was no life. He was dead for 90 minutes, came back to life, but he went a lot further than I did. He actually went to heaven, saw his uh, dead relatives. You know, he had some farmer relatives that had some fingers missing from combine accidents who now had all their fingers. Uh, he was, you know, told things that he would never know in the time space continuum that it's just information that's beyond us that you wouldn't know unless you went to the other side. So his was much more dramatic, but there is a large amount of voluminous amount of material right now out there of people who have uh, NEDs, near death experiences, and they all have a lot of similarities. There's a lot of light involved. Um, if you look at what's being said, and I didn't know this until afterwards, is I have no, I still don't really have a fascination with it, but I have friends that are into this big time. I sure. mean, they just yeah. can't get enough of this type of stuff. But uh, there is a lot of, a lot of the language is somewhat similar as well, you know, that this idea that uh, your mission is not complete and it's not your time, that there's some type of decree that's being issued by uh, a more powerful, older and more real universe than what we have right now that's actually dictating what happens in our space-time continuum. 
So certainly there are people that, you know, will think I'm crazy, but you know, I've given them plenty of opportunities to think that even earlier than that. So I'm already, <laughs> uh, nobody normal looks for Noah's Ark, right? That's going to pigeonhole you. Nobody, you know, climbs mountains around the world, goes, some, they just don't do those things. So I've always been in the abnormal category. So I'm very comfortable with who I am and, and what I experienced that I, I'm not in a space where I need to really argue about it. I will say this, that if people need like uh, vast amounts of scientific evidence, then they've actually uh, destroyed the essence of, of what we have, which mm -hmm. is faith. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of those kind of people that has got to have all your scientific ducks in a row, you're missing the entire point because the entire premise, the cornerstone of Christianity, which has kind of got a bad name right now, let's just say that the cornerstone of following Christ, let's just keep it real simple. Uh, the cornerstone of that is faith. And the cornerstone of that is friendship. It's all about the relationship. I believe what I believe, not because it's some abstract idea that I reconcile with my own scientific brain. I believe it because I have a relationship. He speaks to me. I speak to him. It's a wonderful thing that shouldn't have stopped in 33 AD. Those that were able to be with him and walk with him, we now have that same opportunity through the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who's come mm -hmm. to bring us into all, all truth and to uh, further enhance that relationship with Christ, which is why he had to leave so that we now can all have a relationship with him. He's not bound by the geography of the Middle East. Yeah. He can be everywhere all at once to all people yeah. through the mystery of the spirit. Yeah. I love it. I hope you know, the skeptic, you know, the skeptic is hard because I find uh, at the core of it, um, something happened and it didn't play out the way they wanted to. Mm. And so now God is at fault. Yeah. And they can't reconcile that life can be bad, but God can still be good. And yeah. so it, it's a lot. There's a tremendous amount of ego and entitlement in that way of thinking in that, you know, God owes you an explanation for everything. And God should have done this and should have done that. And it's like, you know, uh, just be real careful with that because God has got uh, some bandwidth that you don't have. And he sees a much larger picture. When you get to the other side of eternity, you're going to realize how small your thinking capacity was. Mm, yeah. I have a lot of people that are, you know, they're, they're thumpers, you know, if they can't find something exactly in the Bible, then it can't happen. And I'll be like, well, you know, I agree. I agree that when God does something, it should be confirmed in scripture. Right. I mean, I think everybody's on the same page with that. However, when you get to heaven someday, are you going to take your Bible with you? And are you going to argue with the people over there that what you're experiencing in that moment isn't found in the canonized scripture? Is that going to be like an issue for you? <laughs> Are you going to sit there and just, you know, do mental gymnastics over the fact that there's stuff that's happening now that you can't find in the Old Testament, New Testament? I mean, let, let's get beyond some of these small boxes that our brains like to occupy. And let's get into this idea that Christ is, um, is it's a dynamic relationship and the Holy Spirit can lead us into new ways of thinking and doing and being that are confirmed in Scripture. Mm -hmm but are not always necessarily bound by its, its exactitude. I don't think that's why the Bible was written. I believe the Bible was written to reflect who God is through the person of Christ, not to beat each other up in political arguments or um, cerebral debates on who knows the most about the Bible, which quite frankly has no interest for me whatsoever. Yeah. Oh man, that's good stuff. And I, I think, you know, even for, for me, for me personally, it can be easy to think that the space-time continuum is all there is. You know, we live in such a, a Western enlightenment 
post enlightenment sort of sort of era and in the the world we live in the um just there's certain western values that are shoved down our throat from the day we're born about materialism and about you know this earth and things that have to be proven and scientific and so uh, i i i love i love hearing uh stories and experiences that people have of the other side and you go yeah you know i I don't guess it's, I think we just, we get conditioned by what we're around. And so it can become, it can become easy to think, uh, yeah, you know, maybe this is all there is. Maybe those people are, are right, you know? And, um, I don't know. So I, I asked that knowing there's some kind of good hearted Christians listening who, who wrestle with these things, or I hope this is true, but I don't know. It doesn't feel like it is. And so, um, man, I, 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 it's, I don't know many people that have died and came back. And, uh, I think well, I you might, either, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is a, so I love, I don't want to do it again. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. It took a while to get back. You know, it's, uh, in closing, uh, I think what C.S. Lewis said, and I'm not saying it verbatim, you might be able to quote it directly, but it's this whole idea that if I, if I am dissatisfied with the world I am living in right now, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting this in its exactitude, but uh, it's this idea that if I'm uh, discontent with the state of living that I'm in right now or the world that I'm living in right now, it might be indicative of the fact that I'm created for another. And I yeah. think every human has this yearning for something beyond ourselves. And it's, it's about transcendence and it's about um, escaping the space-time continuum. There is something inside of each one of us that is innate and inherent to our human condition where we are built for escaping this dimension into the next. And it's why we are involved in addictions. It's why we're involved in um, uh, all types of behaviors because we're looking for that transcendent moment an out-of-body experience that takes us out of this plane of existence into another. It's innate. And so I believe that God put that inside of us because he knows that that's the eventual outcome. And death, um, for all of its fear-mongering, is actually a door and maybe even our dearest friend because that is the that is the way into the next dimension but we fight it so hard because we believe that this is all there is and it's yeah. not there's so much more beyond this mm. i just saw a glimpse but it mm. was enough to, to uh, give me some clarity that yeah this is on the right track and at the end of the day and i i miss that moment with him was uh, i'll never forget it it was um is about as close as I'm going to probably have in this dimension as to probably what the disciples felt like. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was this overwhelming sense of that's the guy I can give my life to. Yeah. I'll follow yeah. him anywhere. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thank you for leading with vulnerability. And uh, thanks for sharing your story on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. No, I appreciate it so much. Awesome interview, right? I, I told you it would be <laughs> like something you've never you've never heard before. And and really I would encourage you, and Kevin's heart would be the same, would be to take that spirit of vulnerability, take that spirit of being vulnerable in community, right? Of of allowing others into your story and allowing grace to meet you. Cause where grace lives, vulnerability abounds. 
We believe in grace. We believe Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We're all in that boat. There's nobody who's not a sinner. If you're in a company of Christians, then there's nobody who hasn't been forgiven of those sins. We're in the same boat. If I've been shown grace and have experienced grace, how could I not show that to you when you share your story? And so find people that you can share your story with and go deep. Do not settle or be satisfied with a cheap surface level imitation of what the church is supposed to be. And so uh, before I, I get on to all the ridiculousness of Noah's rant, I want to read this cool just quote I wrote down from Kevin. God is answering your unanswerable questions with his unanswerable self. He said that in the interview, and I just love that. God is answering your unanswerable questions with his unanswerable self. And trust me, I have my unanswerable questions, and I ask them to God over and over again. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. (laughs) And he is taking me deeper and deeper into having to live that out, to finding the depths of his grace, to find the treasure that is there for me. Uh, And and that is his his unanswerable self. He wants... Um, me to have his presence, his him as a person and in, in relationship. And it's the same uh, offer and invitation for you. So it's pretty awesome, pretty good stuff. So now this is the part of show, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is a serious warning. This is a serious warning. Uh, I guess, you know, let's, let's think back to the interview with Kevin. I've never climbed a mountain before. I imagine there's a point in the mountain where it's you go, okay, you you could die after this point. The, the air is going to be so thin here. This is a serious warning. Turn back now if you're not ready for this thin air. Uh, this is not a healthy place to be. Fair warning. Now, that's Noah's rant, okay? So fair warning. All of the serious pastoral wonderful, life-changing, podcasty stuff. It's over. It's done. Your meal is over. You've eaten. Now it's time for dessert. If you don't like dessert, turn off the podcast now. But APA, my anonymous podcast admirer, emailed in and thinks that the rant should be transcribed, which would be beautiful. Maybe someday someone will transcribe all of the rants and we can put them into a book and we'll split the profit. How's that for a deal if you do that? (laughs) So without further ado, turn this podcast off if you don't want to hear utter ridiculousness. This is your final warning. If you keep going, if you keep listening, it is your fault. If you listen to this and go, that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm never listening to this podcast again. Noah is an idiot. Your fault, not mine. I've warned you. I've, I've, I've told you what's coming. And now it's about to go down. Noah's rant. All right. So last episode, we talked about dressers and how they're the dumbest things in the world, maybe. 
And if you missed that, just go back, check out episode 34. I'm not going to rant on that again. But as I as I was ranting on dressers and how they're the dumbest things in the world, it, it brought up another sensitive subject that happens sometimes. It's a trigger sort of thing, like dressers, and I have all these wounds around dressers, and there's all this pain that I carry around. I bury it under the, under the carpet. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk to anybody about it because me and dressers, it's just, just a thing. And as I'm talking about dressers, I start talking about wrinkly clothes right who cares if your clothes are wrinkly if if you took them out of the dryer think of all the time you would save if you could just take your clothes out of the dryer in the basket you dump them on the floor or if you really wanted to save time just leave them in the basket that would be fine set them out in your room somewhere and when you need something you just dig through the pile and you put it on what are clothes supposed to do they're supposed to keep you warm they're supposed to keep you not naked that helps you, you, don't, you don't want to have uh, public in, public indecency. We, we, don't, we don't need that. Clo- clothes are good. They're helpful. Clothing is, is a good thing. If, if you're playing sports, you want to wear shorts and a t-shirt. If you're, if you're doing something casual, you want to wear jeans. I mean, they're very, very versatile. But whoever decided that wrinkles somehow were a bad thing? And in my last rant, I... I mentioned how dumb almost all fashion is. Somebody one day decided that if you if you cut a strip of fabric off and put it down the middle of your shirt, it would be really as a guy, it would be really fancy. It would it would be really cool. We would so, someone was playing a prank in the in the clothing factory and they took us a, a random piece of trash uh, of one of the garments that had been cut and they tied it around their neck and they they let this random piece of trash of it was sort of a few inches wide of string and they let it hang down their neck and they said hey hey george look at this i i'm gonna i'm gonna put this in the final product bin and he's like you that's the dumbest thing i've ever seen you just have a random piece of fabric around your neck you you look like an idiot you look like a dog on a leash and he goes no no george this is called a necktie and i'm just gonna to be the coolest thing ever don't tell the boss because uh, it's just it's gonna be our little secret and that's how the necktie became a thing and now if you dress up you have like really expensive you pay hundreds of hundreds of dollars or or if you're really uh we i won't fill in an adjective there if you're really adjective then you spend thousands of dollars uh on on your suits and to get really fancy you put a necktie on this isn't even a rant about a necktie the necktie is just leading into the rant about wrinkly clothes so so we decided that neckties somehow were cool and fashionable but wrinkles weren't who Who's the genius that made that decision? It would be so much easier in life if wrinkles were cool and normal. It's completely arbitrary. It would be like if we walked around with four arms, nobody would know. Nobody would go looking at everybody with four arms and go, man, we look weird. Man, I wish we all just had two arms. But if you saw someone walking down the street with four arms, you would do a double take. I think you would do more than a double take. You would go, that person's got four arms. They're only supposed to have two. And that's how we treat people that walk around with wrinkles for no reason. There's no purpose whatsoever that we should think it's weird that they have wrinkles. We just made that decision one day that we would all have no wrinkles. So if somebody did have wrinkles, we could look down on them and go, oh, they're trashy. 
Oh, I can't believe they have wrinkles. I can't I can't believe they didn't waste 20 minutes of their morning with an iron on this hot scalding piece of metal that has burned millions of children who touch it over the course of its existence and I can't believe they they didn't spend 20 minutes of their precious morning this morning ironing out that wrinkly shirt so that it could be straight and, and, and not wrinkly looking like my shirt and the rest of our shirts because we made a, a wonderful decision to decide that that straight shirts would be good, the kinds that are flat with no wrinkles, but a wrinkly shirt would somehow would somehow be bad. And here's the thing about ironing. You go to iron... The shirt, okay? You say, I'm going to succumb to society. I'm going to conform to the pattern of this world, even though the Bible tells me not to. I'm going to do it. I'm going to conform. I'm going to iron my shirts. They're going to be flat, no creases. Okay, so you put the sleeve out on the ironing board, and what do you do? You iron. <laughs> Hot steams, like burning your eyes. You're like, ah, steam, but I must I must conform. I must look like everyone else. And, and you iron out. You go, cool. Good. I finally got all the creases out of this of this side of the sleeve, and I better I better turn it over. I better go to the other side of the sleeve and get and because I got to get those creases out. And you look at it and you go, what the, what the blankety blankety blank? How? When I ironed the other side, all it did is made creases on this side because the it was a little bit bunched up in that hot irony thing. It made it all worse, and so you you got to iron out those creases now, and you're ironing them out, and you 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 flip the sleeve over. Or the pant leg over, and you go, what the, what the blankety blanket did the same thing? I just ironed that side, and because it was a little scrunchy on this side, and I couldn't get those scrunches out, now it's wrinkled again. And you just go back and forth, and back and forth, and meanwhile, somebody that invented uh, that wrinkles were bad is just laughing and laughing. They're looking at you from some secret camera that's in heaven or hell. I, I don't want to judge anybody's soul, but I can't imagine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> in heaven but they're they're watching you just in torture trying to get the wrinkles out and every time you iron one side it just creates wrinkles on the other side it is a brutal cruel form of torture and you wrinkle you you iron out your pants and now they have white lines on them the wrinkles just turned into white lines and you're you you walk around and here's the thing you spend all that work all that frustration, you waste all that time, you could have been reading your Bible, you could have been praying, you could have been telling people about Jesus. Think of all the people that would know Jesus and be in heaven if we told people about Jesus with all the time we waste ironing our clothes. I mean, why don't we hear this message preached in church more often is what I want to know. But you spend all that time and energy and frustration and you walk around and not a single person looks at you and they say, wow, hey, man, thank you. Th oh, th thanks for what? What did I do? Thank you for spending that extra 20 minutes of frustration this morning so that you would look presentable. I'm so glad you did that. We appreciate you and your investment in the world. Thank you that you you look like a normal person should look. Wow. Thanks for doing that. And, and let me let me buy you let me buy you a coffee. Let me pay for your lunch bill. Man, you're swell. You're a great citizen. Nobody ever says that to you. We don't even care that you ironed, and yet you must iron. 
Noah's ran exists to make the world a better place. I'm telling you, it's about mustard seeds, brothers and sisters. It's about mustard seeds. It's about grassroots movements of justice. We can make the world a better place. We can cut the cable of the iron. We can cut that wire. Sneak into your closet. Don't tell your spouse. Just cut it. If they ask you, hey, did you cut that wire? Just say, nah, man, nah. I didn't cut the wire. Well, who cut the wire? I don't know who cut the wire. Maybe one of our kids cut the wire. Maybe the dog cut the wire. And your spouse is saying, what are you talking about? Our kid is two years old. They couldn't have cut the wire. The dog can't even figure out how to poop outside. He didn't cut the wire. I think you cut the... And you're like, no. And you know it was the Holy Spirit that cut the wire. See? The Holy Spirit prompted you to go cut the wire to make the world a better place, to bring Jesus' kingdom here to this place. So stay strong. Stay strong. Cut the wire. Noah's rant is here to make the world a better place. Transcribe that rant. This APA. That's right, baby. Woo! Noah's rant. Making the world a better place. One podcast episode at a time. If you listen to all that, and didn't like it, what is wrong with you? I warned you so clearly not to listen. I told you, do not listen to Noah's rant, and yet you did it anyway. Do you do that just to spite me, just to disobey me, just to say, I'll show Noah. He thinks he can tell me what to do. He can't. What now? I listened to your rant, and I didn't like it. Mm. It's all right. I still love you. I love you. Jesus loves you. This concludes episode 35 of the Flipside Podcast. Stay tuned for David Swanson. I will see you next time on the Flipside. The Flipside with Noah Filipiak is a South Francis Press production. Copyright Noah Filipiak. www.noahfilipiak.com. Theme music by Kyle Lake at K Lake Music. Used with permission. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. Yow, yow, dripping in that gold that don't perish. People selling fake, see the green around their belly. Taking refuge in his hand, see his poems, my living quarters. Close them when I'm finished, it's time to bring me closer. There's no purgatory, cause you're in or you're out. When you see them in the clouds, then you know it's going down. Raise them, raise them, raise them. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. Pulpit preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list. Money probably long, but short is with your days. Have you ever heard the sound of freedom?
Freedom, freedom, freedom coming quickly. Bars from the spirit. Put it through the preamp and mix it like a chemist. Put it in the airwaves and hoping that they hear it. If there's some confusion, then I hope you see him clearly. Raise them, raise them, raise them. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. Poor pit preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list. Money probably long, but sure 